0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
3: It's a brand new year, and it's a brand new day. It's Monday, it's 12 o'clock, and this is What Doesn't Kill You. Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. And this is the beginning of what will be a multi-part series on the dairy industry in America. And I'm very pleased to welcome as my first guest for this series, Lorraine Lewandrowski, who is a working dairy farmer as well as an attorney in upstate New York. Uh, She specializes in agricultural issues. She has been an environmental law litigator representing the endangered carner Blue Butterfly in New York, as well as citizens groups. And she was appointed to the New York State Solid Waste Advisory Board for a decade, working on issues related to what to to do with all the garbage in New York State. And um, she has been representing other farms uh, in agricultural law over the course of her law practice. Um, She can be found under the handle New York Farmer, NY Farmer, on Twitter and on Facebook. And Lorraine, it is an enormous pleasure pleasure to not only like welcome you to the show, but also like hear your voice because we've corresponded oh, yeah. <laughs> so much. <laughs> nice to be on the air. Thanks. You no, know, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know you're a busy, busy girl. So um let's talk a little bit about um well for starters, talk about your farm you know, give us the whole history. You have a really nice story because you're like a um, multi-generation.
4: we farm, actually, we kind of co-farm. We farm, uh, our farm and uh, my brother's in-law's farm uh, Uh side by side. So, um, uh, we farm um, probably, we're milking about 210 cows together between the two farms. Um, so the Lewandowski side of the equation got our start in Hell's Kitchen in <laughs> New York City at the turn of the uh-huh. century. Uh, my grandparents came over from Poland. Yep. Um, they were approached by land agents and along with the young Irish kids saying, hey, would you like to buy some farmland in rural New York? Um, they bundled up their babies and uh, came by train a couple of days to a remote area of new york state and started a farm uh-huh. um the other part of our uh farming equation the other farm that we work with is uh, uh the uh, a cabbage cheese farm they are the uh-huh. diaz family who came from cuba to rhode island and really? then, um bought a farm in massachusetts near smith college uh Mr. Diaz worked in a factory to pay the farm off, and uh, when that area became really subdivided, they moved to be our next-door neighbor. Uh-huh. Uh, my brother married their daughter, and uh, here we are farming two farms side by side. Um I did want to tell a little bit about the history of our farm. Uh, sure, Being go a ahead. little bit different, um, mm-hmm. I come. Um, I, my family now owns the former farm of one of the, uh, I guess I would call it one of the more militant farmers <laughs> in the state. Um, this was a farmer named Stanley Piesek who led the milk strikes
5: of ah, the right. depression
4: era. Um, so my families and um, our our neighbors have been involved in what we call farmer justice for. Mm-hmm. Probably a century. Um, this, I grew up with stories, listening to the older farmers in our area talk about um, the milk strikes, where uh, they had literally uh, shut off the milk supplies to like half of New York City. Um, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia was trying; uh, actually, got involved to negotiate um, a steady supply of milk for New York State or mm-hmm. for New York City because he was very interested in food security issues in his time. Um, you know, I listened to. Some of the older women farmers uh, talk about the milk strikes where they picketed. Um, They were like the first, you know, among the first women picketers. Mm. The milk truck drivers were afraid to try to run over a bunch of women. Um, So, (laughs) you know, they were involved in kind of, you know... Some of the, the, you know, the first kind of more more militant um, farm actions. So it was kind of a, you know, a colorful history that mm-hmm. we grew up with in our neighborhood. Um, and I continued to be interested in trying to represent farmers to the best of my ability as, you know, as I grew older and then went to law school.
3: Right. And ha- you went to law school because you had been involved in uh, trying to protect your land from an emino- eminent domain grab by the state to put a <laughs> landfill true. in, right? And, and once you fought that... We, I
4: opened the newspaper, and there was a picture of our farm on the cover. Oh,
3: my and God. And it had been
4: selected to be a uh. major landfill incinerator site, like a $200 million complex to be no. uh, basically built to handle the garbage for central New York. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we really went on the uh, the, the offensive against that, and we're probably... You now one of the few people to in our central New York anyway, to a beaten eminent domain, so at yeah. that time we hired um wildlife biologists, <coughs> excuse me to comb our farm looking for endangered species
5: mm-hmm.
4: and and so we were able to defeat the project because uh, a number of birds that are threatened species were um uh, found on our uh-huh. land. And so we sent the government packing.
3: <laughs> Great for you. I'm so impressed. I mean, right away, that's just like, okay, now we know the measure of this woman. So <laughs> now you, so you, between the two farms that you work with, you guys have about 200 cows. That actually sounds like a pretty big operation to me. I think, yeah, isn't the average herd you know, about we share, 60? You know, in
4: order for us to try to survive mm-hmm. the really low milk prices, so we try to share our farm machinery. You yes. know, we work at each other's farms, we try to cover for each other. If someone has a sick animal, we'll, you know, we'll both help out. Right. Um, you know, so, so it, you know, so it, it, it's something that I think farms can do. You know, try to work with your neighbors as much as possible to get through this.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's 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 keep going on. Sort of like, what is? Give us a day in the life. What What do you do? Tell okay, me. Tell us so, everything.
4: Um, you know, the basic work is. Uh, you know, you get up. My brother's usually in the barn with my sister. My sister's a large animal veterinarian. They're uh-huh. you know out there at five. Uh, uh first thing you do, feed the cows, clean the barns, uh, milk the cows, feed the calves. Uh, you know, just you know, do all that sort of thing. In the right. summer, you immediately head, head for the hay field. Um, that's my brother is the field specialist, and um, you know he'll do. Take, take inventory of what needs to be done on both farms, whether it's mowing hay, baling hay, making silage. Um, we're primarily grasslands in our approach to farming. We're fortunate that we have a lot of land and a lot of good grass, so that yeah. involves making hay, silage, balage, you know, that, that sort of product. So for farms, it really, you know, depends on your natural resource base.
3: Yes. Are those also added value products for you? Do you have enough land where you're able to actually sell some of that to other local farms? Or uh, is we that
4: hay but to uh like high quality hay to um the there's a good market for horse hay in Massachusetts uh-huh. So you know, once in a while we'll do something like that. Um, we they uh, and um, Diaz Farm, they've also sold some logs. You know where they um, log out like mm-hmm. with cherry logs and things so like that. They have some timber. Yeah. Um, so you know, so the economies up here are kind of integrated. It's not just mm-hmm. food production. It could be forage production. Um, you know, logging uh, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. The new thing is hunting leases. Some of my neighbors really? have signed leases with people to to hunt. Um, you know, we haven't done that, but um, you know, it's 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 another possibility.
3: So, uh-huh. So, would you say that your farm is pretty representative of, uh, say, New England or upstate New York? I'm, I'm sort of lumping the Northeast altogether, but yeah, you're so basically I mean, if you focus the same. On the
4: northeast. Um, mm-hmm. The average size, like so, so the name of the game is New York. New York and Pennsylvania is very much um, small, what we would call smaller farms compared yeah. to some of the other areas. New York, the average size farm is 124 cows. Pennsylvania, we've got probably 7,000 farms, they average 70 cows. Um, right. Vermont, 130 farms. Um, you know say similar sizes um maine it, you know uh, there's a couple of larger farms, Western New York tends to have some very larger you know larger scale farms because right. they have some big open flatlands that are really suitable for growing corn silage so so I would say you know nationally, I've seen the figure of um an average of one hundred twenty five cows okay. um We're down to about maybe forty thousand dairy farms in the United States. I mean, when I was a kid, there were six hundred thousand right so nine out of ten are gone since wow. since I began in um farming.
3: Yeah, that's a that's an inc- and you're not an old woman so. I <laughs> know <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah, not that old. <laughs> yeah, so.
4: I, I try to, for me as a farmer, too, you know, it, since I've been on Twitter, I've really interacted with a lot of farmers from around the world, and I, yep. I try to look at where we, as you know, we're a globalized economy now, where we fit in. We've got 120 million dairy farmers worldwide, average three cows per farm. Wow. Um, we've, we're also seeing the rise of the mega farm. Oh, um, yeah. Internationally, you know, have got the largest Absolutely. farm, largest dairy farm in the world would we'll be coming online in China shortly. That'll be 100,000 cows.
5: Holy smokes. With uh,
4: 20. Twenty-two and a half million acres. Wow. You know, larger farms. Saudi Arabia has got the thirty thirty thousand cow farms plus um, Vietnam wow. thirty thousand cow farm. You know, just so where do we as regular family farmers fit into all of this? You know, right. that's what a lot of us should be asking ourselves. Not yes. just in the United States, but. You know, without the other dairy countries, India, China, Brazil, yeah. you, you know, wherever you are, how do we as a family farm fit into this?
3: Absolutely. That's a great question. I'm going to, I want to, like, we're going to get into those bigger issues in a second, but I, I want people to understand sort of like, you know, what does it cost to, to raise and maintain a dairy cow? You know, how much do you get paid for her milk? Uh, How much can you control what you get for milk? Like, let's talk a little bit about pricing. But first start with, like, what does it cost you to milk a cow? And what kind of return do you get on that investment?
4: Well, I mean, to raise a cow to you know to the point where um, she's able to give milk, you know, mm-hmm. starts from calfhood. Um, I've seen various figures, probably about two thousand four hundred um, on an average farm. I know okay. the, the first sixty days cost you probably about five dollars a day, as a figure I saw in a Cornell study to uh-huh. raise an animal. So by the time you've got you've got a cow to lactation, you're looking at least at least a couple thousand dollars. Right. Um, you know, we like to raise our own animals. Um, you know, we've been raising this. Same animals from the same uh, same bloodline since we first got started. So we're okay. like, on I, we figured out the other day, fifty generations of Aww. cows on our farm. Um, what you know, breed so we like do to you raise milk? them ourselves? Some people buy them. Yeah, um, but you know that we're you know, and then I can also another parameter that's important is the debt load per farm um, per cow.
5: Okay,
4: um, I just saw a farm credit report that here in the Northeast. Anyway, the average debt per cow is about four thousand one hundred dollars. So if you look at your average herd of 100 cows out grazing, you know, you can rest assured there's pushing, you know, half a million dollars of debt behind that herd. Wow. So you've got to meet your debt servicing, your feed costs, you know, all of these sorts of things. And it has been really hard when the, the price of milk's been very volatile. In 2009, we saw this really horrific price crash. Um, right. And then it went up um, to around, t- maybe around $25, a 100 And now I, I took a look at the milk price. There's a thing called the milk price map. And yeah. um, here in the Northeast, we were getting about $17 for 100 pounds of milk. That'd uh-huh. so be, I think, maybe like a dollar sixty-three for a gallon of whole milk.
3: Wow! And <laughs> I'm trying to figure. Okay, so tell me what. How does that uh, stack up against what your costs are? Yeah. Like, what um, are you getting? Well,
4: cost of, there are figures called cost of production. For most right? of us farmers, right now, we are not making enough to cover what it costs to produce the milk
3: at the mm-hmm. current milk price and service your debt. Yeah, so that
4: means you're losing money. Um, so, for most of us, just about everybody that I know has um, an off farm job or they're taking on more yeah. debt. Um, yeah. You know, like, say, one of my neighbors is a, uh, the wife is a nurse. Yep. So, she has decided she's working two shifts. So, she goes one shift and then she goes, she's literally working like 80 hours a week to bring in money to make the payments. Ugh. Um, you know, on, on my farm, I'm a lawyer, so I work off the farm, and yep. so, you know, if if need be, if there's some emergency, you know, it's like to you know make you know whatever payment, you know, I would just contribute from my law office. Right. Um, you know, another guy's a, a feed a nutritionist. He makes his money balancing rations for other farms That's to right. support you... his farm. So a lot of us have off right. farm jobs or are taking more debt at this point.
3: Sure. I mean, your sister in law is a great example. She's a large animal vet. I mean, she's yeah. like an... oh, you know.
4: So my sister's out um the only the problem in, in for large animal vets when the farmers are losing money is a lot of the farmers can't pay their bill or even yeah. pay for their medicine Aww. um you know i remember 2009 when, it, when things were really bad the um people were literally you know like knock on the door of the clinic begging for cow medicine that they had yeah. no money for. Yeah. So, you know, when you get into those bad periods, it's not so easy even as a veterinarian, but hey, you know, it's good. She, she really loves it.
3: Of course. You don't do stuff like that if you don't love it. It's just No, too hard. being
4: a large animal <laughs> vet is the, small, the money is in small animals. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's a reason why we've had a shortage of large animal vets. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard work. You're on call 24 hours a day. It's, right. um, you know, it's not as easy as standing in a clinic and, um, you know, doing small animal after small animal.
3: Yeah, no, I've seen those guys—they're like stripped down to the waist, and they're like got their arm halfway <laughs> up. a cows rectum and you
4: know. <laughs> I usually go on that calls with her. I just like the slave labor for those types of calls. So.
3: <laughs> Too funny. So tell us, how much have these figures changed? Like, how different is it now than it was when you were growing up? I'm just trying to well, get we audiences up, an we idea to of what's changed. Make
4: money. Um, you know, we weren't we weren't losing money. Right. Um, you know, so uh, I we're in a over over um supply situation right now where right. we have more here in the northeast more milk um and I, more milk than i would say our the plants the processing plants that we do have can possibly handle uh-huh Um, Therefore, um, the Northeast is still a region where the cows hit the grass every spring. So there's a period of time called, it's called the spring flush, which means the cows have hit grass and milk production has soared. It's like June, Uh that's why we have June Dairy Month. We encourage people to drink milk.
5: Um,
4: And, you know, then we have had excess milk that, um, you know, even the powdering plants couldn't handle. Uh So some of that milk has been dumped.
3: Right. That seems criminal. Okay. It's
4: not Too. I can't imagine, you know, milking, you know, doing all the work, filling a tractor trailer of milk and then dumping it. The only thing I will say, though, is the valuable portion of it, which is the fat, is um, usually skimmed off. There's an excellent market. um, They can't get enough um, in terms of butter fat for uh, products like ice cream um, and butter.
3: And cream and cheese. Yeah. So, those what are, about, so those, yeah. the
4: fat is skimmed off, and it's yeah. more you know the uh, fluid milk, the, the you know the skim portion that's dumped, and this all has to be under supervision of ag and markets and all that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's you know I've just I, I sometimes wondered you know would there be a way for uh, me and I you know and I I've thought about it, but I haven't done it to contact like food pantries or something in major cities and say hey you yeah. know what if we got you these tr- you know trailers of milk could you help us process it and and just plain give it away?
3: Yeah. That's a great question, and yes, you know, I don't, I don't we will know. pursue that together on another—not on another program, but between the two of us. Let's. Can we talk a little bit about the difference between commodity milk, which and organic operations? Like, you know, do you mm-hmm. is it is it why why isn't everybody an organic farmer? <laughs> well, <laughs> because you get better I price, know right?
4: Transition to organic. It's yeah. really hard right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the organic processors are not taking on any new farmers. They can't sell it. Right. Um, it's kind of plateaued. Um, in terms of demand. Um, you know, I do have a couple of clients who poured a ton of money into transitioning, and now the processors have sent them letters breaking their commitment, saying, that, sorry, but we can't take you. So oh, they're God. like, I have one guy, this is really going to hurt financially, big time. Um, so that's that's one concern right now. Um, I, I guess, uh, for me, 100% of our land could be certified organic right now. Um, I personally do not really like like the idea that you can't treat a sick cow and keep sure. that cow the rule is now that if you treat a cow even one time like say you have a cow you know who had some an injury or was sick or whatever you treat right. her then she has to leave the farm um,
5: oh. I mean I,
4: I just for us as smaller farmers it seems hard because we love yeah I mean I don't want to throw a cow out onto the auction because she was yeah, treated once
3: Of course not
4: So that's what in Europe it's different you can have like a much you know they you can withhold the milk a much longer period of time I see. So that's that's been an impediment to me personally. Personally, I have a hard time thinking, you know, that I would have to, you know, like my niece's show calf is named Autumn, so if Autumn got sick even once, we'd then have to load her on a truck and send her to the auction if we treated uh-huh. her, so so I don't yeah. like that aspect of it, um, and I, you know, I wish the rules would be changed, but for whatever reason, the consumer groups um, in the U.S. have said no. Uh-huh. Um, I, the other thing I sometimes have a little trouble with organic is, like, the, the marketing. I yep. I have a hard time aligning with where the publicity is saying how other farmers are, you know, like dirt bags. like
5: mm-hmm. there been
4: there was a campaign recently called Only Organic and they, they produced these little movies showing like the other farmers be, as being stupid buffoons spraying pesticides on everything oh, and, boy. you know, prancing around beating cows and stuff like that. It was like, <laughs> uh, this, uh, you know, I actually called a couple of the organic marketers and I called the agency that created the ad and left
3: nasty messages for them. Yeah, I don't blame you. You know, I, I'm going to digress for a moment here from our, our little show outline and just talk for mm-hmm. a second about um kind of the the divide between um not only the organic, you know, sector and the commodity sector but also just like the basic lack of um understanding of con- you know, between consumers and farm. I mean, I think, I think most consumers would agree that farmers are valuable and important part of our of our community. You know, like mm-hmm. we couldn't live without them. Um, and yet, farmers don't aren't getting that message. And I, you know, and yeah, There's a I lot it's of like
4: I was in the city meeting with some people and they and um, some food groups and they said like, um, oh, are you organic? And um, they, and I said no. And I and I couldn't really tell the whole story of our sure. farm or anything. And they they were like, oh, okay, because we really only want to talk to organic people and I was like oh, okay great
5: you yeah, know right. but, like
4: if i look at new york we've got 7.2 million acres of farmland okay so yeah. only 200,000 of that maybe 213,000 was the figure i saw recently is certified organic so again now there's 7 million acres out there right. beyond the amount that's certified organic um so so we've got, you know, and out of that, you've got a third is perennial pasture and woodlot really yeah. serving some great eco, you know, eco services, ecological services that they call it. Right. You know, watershed, you know, the New York City watershed, a good chunk of that is in farmland. So so that's what I just like, this thing where you can only talk to an organic farmer, which I have some more. You know, some of my friends are organic and, you know, I, we love them. It, it, you know, but, it's, but then when I try to talk to them, they go with our marketing people. They They say that, but we can't stop them. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, so I would like to see the consumer understand, you know, a little bit more about the farms, you know, every farm has a story. Every farm has, and it, it, it's you know not just dairy, but all farms. We all have of course resources. You know, like I, I in, in my case on our farm, um, we our farm and um, Diaz's farm is in a we are in a zone called um, grassland focus Zone. There are five of these in New York State, and these uh-huh. are zones where um, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation feels that grassland birds have a chance of surviving.
5: Sure, I mean we've
4: lost so many farms in the Northeast that grassland. Bird species populations are literally literally crashing. You know, oh Audubon had a report on Massachusetts where they've, so much land has been split up and subdivided that species like, say, upland sandpipers, um, even common meadowlarks, bobolinks, their populations are all falling. Mm. You know, it's just kind of like an indicator of what's happening to the land. So there's so much more out there than just a simple label. You know, and, and for me, I really would love it if people from the city would understand more about natural resources and ecosystems. I mean, that's what I put a lot of time into as an environmental litigator. Yeah, And probably one of the happiest moments of my life was bringing a shopping center to a halt until the Carter Blue Habitat could be addressed.
5: Mm -hmm. Good for you. (laughs) You know,
4: but here now we see lands being split. Every farm in my area that falls turns into a subdivision. Mm -hmm. So I, I just don't see what's so great about that.
3: Absolutely not, and I'm sure the American Farmland Trust would agree with you on that story. Yeah,
4: you know, I mean, you've got these <laughs> land trust groups fighting tooth and nail to preserve land here you know, here and there as they can afford it, yeah. pouring their hearts out into raising money and doing all this stuff. And then, you know, then we have our, you know, beyond that, the commercial farms that are serving as, like in my area, for sure, bastions against sprawl. Um, yeah. So, like, a farm was sold in my area. It was split up immediately. Um, the, the first thing I saw in the spring was the division Developers out there plowing—literally, they were plowing the fledglings of the grassland bird species that live there under. And I said, you know, you guys are really like destroying this meadow. And they said, well, the new people want lawns.
5: Yeah. Okay.
4: You know. So um, you know. So there's there's just so much more out there than uh, a a label. Um, uh, So that's what I really would like people from the city to get to know, you know, what they have in their region.
3: Right, right. Well, let's talk about co- co-ops. Um, and and my first question to you, I'm from Rhode Island, and I actually live there most of the time now, and we have Rody Fresh. We have mm-hmm. a dairy co-op. Is there such a co-op in, like, for instance, I would buy that over, say, Organic Valley. Mm-hmm. I do tend mm-hmm. to buy organic milk. Um, but... Uh, you know, I would buy a New York state co-op milk if it was widely available. Talk talk about how. Yeah.
4: So, so we have um, a number of co-ops that operate in New York state and nationally. Um, So like, for example, my sister-in-law's farm, um, the Diaz farm, ships their milk to Cabot Cheese. So they are members of uh, AgriMark and this company. You know, the cheese produces great cheddar. So, you know, we take great pride in that. Sure. You know, they do, too. So, like, that's like an example of a New England co-op where you know that the money is going to go back to the farmer. Mm -hmm. Um, The milk from our farm goes to another co-op that's like a little bargaining agency where we are like 50 farms, all like mid-sized farms. Um, we sell our milk. We hire a milk broker who then sells mm-hmm. our milk to a variety of, you know, Greek yogurt processors, bottlers, you know, like handlers all over the place. Sure. So, so there. Are, but we looked into bottling, and we've actually been trying to see if we had someone came up from New York City to see the possibility about bottling, having a label under our our Mohawk, where in the Mohawk Valley, yeah, type of label. I would love to see more of that. In our state where, you know, it would be more like in Europe where they have regional differentiation where they know. Like, I went to the French farm show a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. and um, French people seem to know the regions. If I said, you know, oh, this region or that region, they go, oh, that area produces great butter. Or we love the cheeses from there. But we just don't we're getting to, like... um, you know not an, you know moving moving away from regional everything is like becoming uniform nationally right. where you have a few large players dominating everything and smaller mm-hmm. brands have a hard time getting in and or even getting started
3: or even getting the price and that that brings me because the reason I'm asking you about the co-ops in your area and what you think about co-ops is because I read an article recently in the Washington Monthly by an author named Leah Douglas and mm-hmm. it was about the dairy farmers of America which seems to dominate the industry Uh, certainly from a political perspective, but also apparently from a pricing and, um, Mm
0: -hmm. dare I
3: say, price-fixing perspective. And I wondered, like, how, you know, when you, because they're so dominant in the industry nationally, um, I'm sort of curious about how these smaller co-ops and brokers can actually get their feet into the door of other processors. Do you have, like, the problem of, like, say, In the meat industry, the parallel to that would be you have to sell your beef into one of the big four companies because there's no processor near you, and therefore you can't get your animal to slaughter. You
4: know, know, in the Northeast, well, here in New York, it's Uh really difficult to sell you know, to sell me, you've got to go right. through somebody who's going to end up in one of these large companies. Yeah, yeah so, you know, Dairy Farmers of America is a co-op, and yep. I did, that article that I read, um, I did get a good takeaway from that, and that is about cooperative governance. You know, yes. how do the members ensure that the farmers themselves benefit from such, you know, from a co-op, whether it's right. large or small. But um, yeah, so you know, um, Dairy Farmers of America is a very large co-op. Um, I imagine that if they wanted to, they could price undercut in, in in different places. You know, when you go when a smaller co-op goes to sell their product, um, yeah. So that you know, that can be an issue when, like anything else, things become very concentrated. So, Laurie, but, um you know, maybe you'd want to have have them on the air, let them speak for themselves.
3: I am going to. <laughs> yeah,
4: I mean, you know, just they're down the road one a little of the bit. Dfa farmer or, uh, <laughs> communications people is on Twitter. I've seen. So I mean. I think those would be good questions to address to them. You know, how how do they ensure fair treatment of farmers and, you yeah. know, their members and, and non-members? You know, they, they would be the ones most qualified to give that answer.
3: Oh, for sure. Now, would your, say, can your co-ops, or say you have your milk broker that's working with your 50 farms, mm-hmm. do, do, would he then sell, for instance, to the Dairy Farmers of America for, for processing or for marketing? Or... Yeah, they So they they would do that. I mean,
4: our co-op has been able to find uh, buyers um, by sending our broker out. And in some cases, our farmers have simply gone out and knocked on the door of processors, which is a change. Um, We had another co-op that we're working with, and actually some women took the board over. And um, they decided they would just go (laughs) and knock on the door of dairy processors and sell milk themselves. Wow. Um, Cool. So that was like, you know, some of us older farm women, I call it older and bolder. And... (laughs) (laughs) So and I I would ask you know, another question though, you know, we have a lot of focus on on dairy co ops. I would like to ask the processors how do they ensure sustainability for their farmers who supply them? You know, most of the processors pay rock bottom the, yep. the minimum price. You know, some of them have the farmers bidding down against each other. Yeah. So, you know, wait, like it's kinda like hunger games for farmers. And the processors kinda just sit back and um, you know, and, and um and say nothing and, you know, present themselves to the public as, you know, benevolent and pictures of little red farms and all barns and all this kind of thing. But how do the processors, you know, what I, I like they all talk about sustainability. What how do they see the farms in the countryside of rural New York as, you know, their the prices that they pay and how do they help contribute to sustainability or are they just another extractive industry?
3: They're just another extractive industry. I think I can answer yeah, that I don't for know.
4: you. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've been trying to get a handle on that and I've invited some of them to speak with
3: me. Uh, that's I, Well, listen, we're going to take a short break. We're going to do a sponsor drop. We're, stay with us, folks. We're with Lorraine Lewandowski, who is a working dairy farmer and an uh, environmental attorney in upstate New York, and she's given us the skinny on what is really going down in the dairy industry from the boots-on-the-ground perspective. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking today with Lorraine Lewandowski. Did I say that right, Lorraine? Yeah,
4: Lewandowski. Lewandowski,
3: <laughs> um, who is a working dairy farmer and an attorney uh, who addresses environmental issues and other uh, agricultural justice problems in upstate New York. Um, so we were talking about dairy co-ops, but I, I, I'm wondering, like, how, how you know, you just talked about how the farmers tend to, you know, bid them, b- undercut each other in order to sell into a processor and the processor's. Sits back, licking their chops. Um, <clears throat> how 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 can farmers protect themselves aside from joining a co op? Is there any other way you can protect yourself from predatory price fixing?
4: Well, it is, you know it is really difficult. We are what we've always called price takers. You know, usually the processor right. just tells you the price, and that's it. Right. That, um, you know, so the way I me. like being in a, a small co op where we can kind of band together and, and mm-hmm. bargain at different times. Um, you know, or at least try to you know protect ourselves as best as possible um you know i'm I, I and i like the fact that our co-op is small and everybody can have a voice right um you know we're all kind of similar in size and and makeup yeah there really there's no like code of conduct or anything like that in terms of um mm-hmm. you know how uh, processors would deal with things so you get into a, a surplus situation where you have more milk i mean i you know, I don't, you know, it's difficult when we don't have a lot of, it's, we need more processing facilities in the Northeast. And mm-hmm. for whatever region, some of the reasons, some of the largest plants coming in line are being built in the Midwest and, you know, places, Idaho, you know, places like that. So um, I think there's plenty of room for expansion of, of plants, but this involves uh, looking at agriculture as economic development here in the Northeast. Yeah. You know, we're sitting on top of the Greater New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Metropolitan Corridor. I mean, I don't even know how many people are there, but we're on top of the best market in the world. Yes, Um, you are. And I know people like to have diverse products. So, you know, it is really time to step up our game in terms of of seeing our farms as economic development.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think would uh, persuade local, uh, you know, governments, state state governments, because obviously we're not going to get any help from the federal government here, but h- mm-hmm. how do you see state governments stepping in and trying to make that kind of thing happen how do you how do they support uh, you know, agricultural economic development. Well, I think, or don't like they? for
4: example, in New York, you know, sending messages to the farmers that a let, let's say let's send some accurate messages to the farmers for a starter. Um, <laughs> I said it in the yogurt summit a couple of years ago, where Governor Cuomo implored the farmers to produce more milk. Um, you know, do anything you can, pull out all the stops. We need right. more milk to ensure that these massive yogurt plants stay here. I see. So now, it's a couple years later, we haven't heard, you know, we, the farmers went ahead, they produced more milk, but, you know, where is the market for it? Right. Um, you know, one of the largest um, economic development monies were poured into a plant um, that was run by um, Pepsi and um, Mueller yogurt in Batavia, New York. Uh-huh. That plant is sitting there empty. Mm-hmm. um you know so economic i would say to you know when um the local economic development entities are looking at um going forward with their say their rounds of money or their you know their assistance or whatever to really consider um the expansion of some of the smaller regional facilities or uh, construction of newer facilities um we've also seen some um entities starting to come online to assist farmers and maybe trying to do a value-added product uh Cobleskill, New York is um getting uh, like a uh, Cobble School University is getting a uh, kind of uh, test, kind of kitchen, cut little miniature cheese plant area where, or yogurt where farmers could w- experiment with trying to make a product, you know, initiatives like that, um, which I believe they have more of in Europe from when I, I had taken a cheese making course in Vermont and our professor was telling us about initiatives to help smaller and more regional producers, yeah. whereas in the United States we always go for the huge
3: yeah. I mean, you know, you sell into craft. You sell yeah. to, so, I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, you become a, a, plant a, a DFA Fox. farmer and then you're selling into craft or you're selling into one of the other big major, you know, hood milk or, you know, whatever. Yeah, And
4: we, and here in New York, we do have some beautiful, say, local milk brands that, like Stewart's Dairy has won many awards right. at Cornell for their, their great product, their quality, their ice cream is like number one. I mean, I, I won't, Eat a lot of other ice cream, but I do love that one. Um, mm-hmm. Burn Dairy is another uh, kind of regional. Um, you know, Mercer's Dairy is a dairy north of us. They are making wine, ice cream and a wine flavored ice cream that they're now exporting overseas. Wow. Um, you know, then we have Upstate Niagara, is a co-op um, that manufactures products out in western New York. So, so I, you know, I like I just like to see though. You know, and you mentioned Rhodey Fresh Hudson Valley Fresh. Yeah. You know, I, I like it when consumers also try to take a look for some of these products of their region. And, And, and I like, I like to see a recognition, you know, that the, the city needs us to feed them and the farmers also need the city. So we're kind of in it together.
3: We are. And I, you know, it's, it's a big part of uh, food security going forward. In my opinion, I think that these, you know, I, I'm waiting for the antitrust uh, legislation to be invoked. (laughs) Yeah. you You
4: know, it's, we really need to take a look at how things are becoming yeah. more and more concentrated, you know, and, and not just in, in agriculture. So, so that Leah Douglas article you mentioned was very informative to me. Um, but I, I like to food security is something that I'm very interested in. I mm-hmm. was at um, when I was at the yogurt summit. I met some people from Cornell who told me that the day that the World Trade Centers went down, yeah. um, Shortly thereafter, they received a call from uh, I'm not, I think from the governor's office saying, "Please tell us how much food does Manhattan have." Yeah, we, they were worried there would be more hits, which we just you know we didn't know that day. Right. But how long could Manhattan hold out without
3: food? Well, I can tell you right now, three days. That's how yeah. much food we have on the that there. That's how much food is in the grocery stores in Manhattan on any given day is enough for three days of consumption. Wow. And yeah. then so, then we're done. You know,
4: so looking at our regional natural resources, you know, say through New England, I know there was a New England food vision where they tried to. Um, Developed by by twenty fifty um, uh-huh. more security for New England. So I think you know just the Northeast in general in servicing the whole those Northeast corridor cities. Yeah, it's very unwise to throw your farms away.
3: It's very unwise, and it's very unwise to assume that you're going to be able to be uh, supplied regularly from other parts of the country. Should we endure some kind of you know massive?
4: Well, even worldwide, you know, like I've been following refrigeration capacity on the East Coast port.
3: Uh So they're stepping
4: up refrigeration capacity to accommodate increased food imports,
5: which would be more like,
4: say, fruits and vegetables. Yeah. So, like, even, um, you know, just, if you just, like, go from, like, look at Port of Miami, um, mm-hmm. you know, so, and Port of Miami had an interesting thing going on. It's going to be a food train that will bring food, um, brought in from overseas in this dedicated train to the heartland. That'll be called a food train. Interesting. Um, so, you know, so the infrastructure is moving in place to accommodate more imports and, and exports of our, like, say, grain or, or meat. Sure. So we, you know, so, I mean, where do we, in the Northeast, fit into this, and how do we safeguard our our cities? You know, I mean, I, I, I I'm not just focused on the Northeast, but it's what I know the most about. Well, of course. But I think people around you know around the United States and. And overseas should just be asking about the future and, and um, security.
3: Yeah, no, I I agree with you. Let's let's move on a little bit though. Um, I want to talk to about one thing uh, before we we really move on about sort <laughs> of like the Canadians and regulatory policies and so forth. And 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 have you seen in your industry in the dairy industry have you seen a drop in market share because of the rise of these alternative milks like soy and rice and almond and so on? I mean, there's you know there's a decent amount of kind of negative press about milk. Um, Yeah, that I'm Um, noticing. So,
4: like, um, when I when I take a look, first of all, let me just say this: when I hear the word "plant based," yeah, uh, it, it is code. For say whatever the hell you want about dairy farmers, be mean as you want, say nasty stuff, Aww. put out nasty things, give death threats. That's what that word means to me. I mean, oh I've God, had so many Lorraine. death threats through my life,
5: you or have? through
4: my, my time on social media, where people call my office and tell me I'm going to die hanging from a meat hook. Um, <laughs> you know, my secretary was ready to quit after the first call. But you know, oh my just Lord. like um,
3: these are from people who are on plant based diets.
4: Yeah, man, well, I would call them militant vegans.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Um, you know, so there's a sector where that's like Ugh. perfectly acceptable acceptable to say that kind of stuff. Right. So, but as far as dairy goes, I mean, per capita dairy consumption overall has increased. Um, it's ticked up steadily. Like, mm-hmm. So if I look back in the 70s, it was, a, you know, what they call it, um, milk equivalent. So that means if you took out, you know, if you take the milk fat out and, you know, get rid of the water, you know, and what it takes, uh, in, you know, when, to make a product, you know, in, in making a product, mm-hmm. we've gone from roughly 539, I, I, I pulled a little chart, um, 539 uh, pounds per capita up to 646. Per cap,
5: okay. so
4: yes. While our fluid milk consumption has declined, um, right. other categories like say yogurt and cheese soared. Yeah. So yogurt is like um, more than what's the word seven times over? I don't know how to yeah. say more increased. than quadruple Exponential.
5: Okay. Um, Exponential. Butter increase. is up.
4: Yeah. Um, you know, cheese. Various mm-hmm. categories have increased. There's probably with like uh, pizza consumption, fast food. You know, I don't. You know, it's not necessarily the, you know, artisan cheeses. Right. Um, so there is plenty of growth in those areas. The decline in fluid milk consumption, though, has hit New York farmers hard, though, because our traditional infrastructure, we call it a milkshed, what Viorella yeah. LaGuardia talked about in the old days, the New York City milkshed. Yeah. We were geared very much towards fluid milk for New York City. Yeah. So when um, consumers in New York City can whipsaw the farmers upstate by drinking less milk and by knocking us, like, say, Mark Bittman went on the, the rampage attack against us in, back in, I think, around 2012, nice. headlighting in the New York Times, milk is no good for you, why do you drink it? Uh, well, that you know, was
3: before he became Mr. Sustainability.
4: Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so that hurts the farmers of this this state. Yes. Because our our capacity and our production was traditionally geared, they call it, utilization. Mm-hmm. Y- utilization towards fluid milk consumption. Right. Um, yogurt has helped us. Yes. Um, you know, we, the average American somewhere around 13 or 14 pounds of yogurt consumption. Nowhere near as, like, say, Europeans so who are probably eating double that amount. But, yeah. um, you, you know, so we do have a um, potential for, you know, switching Um, processing mix to a mix that will be uh, better for us here in the Northeast, you know, if people continue to drink less. But I cannot see what is so great about almond milk. Um, Okay, you got six almonds with some fluids and some stabilizers. Um, I watched the bees. Uh, A a thousand new beehives went into my county or my area lately with the Amish coming in. All right, so we have commercial beekeepers who take the bees out of our area, go to the south, and then um, some of them head out to California to pollinate almond groves. All right. And then the bees come back sick and stressed from this great mingling of bees that is like artificially created by almond, so-called pseudo milk, um, to um, (laughs) pollinate these huge groves. And then, you know, I know it's like 60% of the bees in the country. I mean, what is so great about that ecologically? I, I just don't see it.
3: Well, almonds have a lot of problems, in my opinion, because they're such water sucks. Yeah,
4: so you know, water uh, utilization in an area, you know, in an area in California that's running out of water. California dairy people are plowing up um, meadows to plant almonds. Yeah, you know, because it's it's more profitable, and there's a lot of lot of almond export. But I would say, just eat the almonds. I mean, almond milk really returns very little to the to actual farmers. Six almonds probably does not do a lot for the almond grower. You know, right. just just
3: eat the almonds. Right, right. Um, <laughs> let me let me ask you something about price supports, and um, because I know that, for instance, like the the reason we have so much cheese in our diets now is not because we're eating delicious cabbage cheese or some other wonderful mm-hmm. artisanal cheese, but because it's like commercially produced. I, I guess what we would call government cheese. You know, that goes into like inside the crust of you know Pizza Hut or you know like how the government mm-hmm. or 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 is it that the dairy checkoff is the one that's pushing that? I'm, I'm trying to figure out why that is what kind of uh, intervention with the USDA or with the government in general uh, you know tell me about the farm bill like let's let's get that sort of Well let me let me get on the farm that.
4: bill first cuz yeah. that's what's um, yeah. on the discussion uh, table right now there've been right. some listening hearings that are starting up here in the northeast um at this point we don't have a support program where there's any you know government intervention where they actually go and buy a product and then store it someplace and then release it later um, mm-hmm. you know that's that's all gone um what we had in the from the prior farm bill was a program called margin protection program mpp and so this was supposed to be a program where if your revenues Fell below a certain amount, that um, the, you would get um, some sort of indemnity payments. Kind I of, like they call it more of a risk management. Right, it's almost so, like crop okay, insurance. So this program, you know, it, it, um, some farmers at, back in the last farm bill wanted to have like a supply management type of program where there would be like a base, and you, you know, you right. would have like uh, produce what, what what the market needs. Um, but that was shot down; that that didn't go anywhere. So instead was um, the concept of risk management. So the only problem with it was that the the formula that was used for it must be deeply flawed. Um, Farmers paid in about $73 million in premiums and we received back out 730000 in, in <sighs> indemnity payments. So the bulk of it, uh, this other $72 million went to the U.S. Treasury. So it was basically basically a program to suck money out of the dairy farmers. Um, uh, so there's an admission now that the, there were some deep flaws in this program, and um, their hearings are being held. Senator Gillibrand at one point tried, one said she wanted to try to get the $73 million back for the farmers. Yeah. <laughs> and the chances of that happening are pretty small. Um, yeah. I, we also are also taking a look at how milk is priced. Uh, currently, the formulas mm-hmm. are, are, we have what we call federal marketing orders, where you, you p- kind of pool, the, the processors pool all the money that's paid. Um, they pay by different categories. Mm-hmm. Fluid milk. Is supposed to get the highest pay than yogurt, then cheese, and then butter and powder. Um, then they can, then they pull all these figures together and they come up with an average figure. So one proposal that um, I know that Senator Gillibrand's office had mentioned the last hearing I went to was maybe trying to change the, the formula. Yeah, um, to benefit the fact you know to go more along more in accord with um, yogurt and soft products are more of where it's at now. Um, you know, so that, so that was one aspect of it. Um, and um, I don't know, you know, where we're uh, – there's a big call now, it seems out in the, the grassroots and the farmers, um, and, and one group has arisen, talking about supply management, where we do okay. something like the Canadians do, where the, the, the uh, co-ops, the processors, whoever, send the farmers a signal and say, hey, look, this is what we're going to need. We're only going to buy – we're only going to pay you full price for what we can sell.
5: And mm-hmm. then you'll get
4: a much diminished price for anything over that.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, so that's so that supply management is what the Canadians have, and it's it's a system where the farmer really controls their own destiny, yeah. and they determine how much to be produced, and you know, much is, like the corporations do. Right? Isn't so, this what President concept.
3: Trump was complaining about with the Canadians?
4: Yeah, he Trump is really um, against the Canadians. I mean, I I'm not. I mean, we the the Canadians are just over the border to us. Yeah. Um, You know, for us in northern New York, upstate New York, we consider them to be neighbors, Ontario, Quebec. You know, we have gone up there for for cow shows. My father used to go to to Canada to buy nice bulls. um, Yeah, (laughs) of course. Stuff like that. So, I mean, who are we to tell the Canadians how to do things? And if the supply management is working for them... And they have a, a more prosperous countryside. I can tell you, if you drive around Ontario and Quebec and you look at the farms, they look a lot better than when you cross over the border back into rural New York, where oh, you can see literally barns falling down, yep. just decrepit sure. areas. I mean, there's a there's a Cornell report out showing we have 3 million acres of farms that are fairly abandoned. Maybe they, somebody cuts the hay once oh, a year. Oh, I've seen
3: but, many of you know. them. I've driven around a lot up there.
4: Yeah, so, yeah, so you, I mean... Farmers will tell you they could drive for miles in many areas and just see everything falling apart so yeah. so how is that working for rural new york
3: so yeah, exactly so so you would be in favor of a supply management strategy yeah i
4: like I like mm-hmm. the idea of the farmers getting a signal as to how much they can produce or so. or um, you know add on. Um, you know, but at the same time, farmers are under pressure from farm financing entities that tell you, oh, you have to add on more cows. You have to cash flow more if you're going to meet your mortgage payments. Oof. So your lending institutions will tell you a different story and say, hey, milk more. Right. You know, so, and then that depresses so I thought, your I price. I could see some, you know, something in the way of signals. Um, I don't know, you know, if there have ever been discussions with the key processors. Let's say, you know, you're talking to big-time processors, if they would share their signals for their their marketing or how much they need, uh, you know. But there needs to be be something. But, you know, Globally, we're looking at, you know, excess production in Europe and, um, you know, some of these other places as well. You know, Europe ended their quota system, and the farmers were, you know, and I I have been watching some films, like, say, about some of the countries, like France There's a nice film about the working countryside, and,
5: Mm
3: -hmm.
4: you know, same thing happening there as uh, farms dropping.
3: That is true. I've seen that, too. So
4: rural, you know, I but you know again considering rural economic development when you strip out an area and leave the people in poverty you know you, they they can't market their milk they they can't have a you know they can't have a decent farm you know the taxes are high the the young people leave because there's absolutely nothing there right. you know we've seen an out migration in rural New York and you know it's like I, my someone was telling me the other day 190,000 people have left upstate New York over the mm. If it's the past decades, it's like the size of a small city evacuating,
5: yeah. <laughs>
4: it, it leads to a situation where you see a lot of um, resentment um, and just like, uh, you know, just this hopelessness out in some of the areas. Yes. Um, you know, I, and I just don't, you know, when you don't have a balanced economic development that accommodates both the rural and the urban, it just leads to trouble.
3: Yes, I agree. Lorraine, we're going to wrap it up there, um, and you are now going to promote yourself shamelessly. Where do people... <laughs> well, I
4: don't know about it. Uh,
3: pr- uh, you know what? Uh, I wanted to
4: say hi to my Twitter friends. You <laughs> They keep me company. They listen to my rants when I haven't had enough coffee. You know, I love them. Um, I did want to say, too, that um, I... There's one thing I want to say to food, people who are interested in food, food yeah. movement groups, quit having the same tired old speakers. I mean, I think we, we reached peak tiredness at, um, with uh, Mark Bittman at Stone Barns
5: yeah. last
4: month where he gave this oh. wacko speech urging the government to start appropriating farmers' farmland at the time the farmer dies. And give it to other people who are, quote unquote, more deserving. Oh, that was unbelievable! I would like uh, to see some inclusiveness in the food movement. Um, yes. I watched this a young woman from, uh, I think, a chef or an educator stand up and and um, talk to Mark Beckman and ask how he, as a person of privilege, you know, includes communities of color or vulnerable communities, and just watched him have zero answer. So zero. you know, just I think I think all of that should be put aside. There should be some inclusiveness. Um another thing I wanted to say is that um I if you're in a in a food interested type of thing work with some regional groups one yeah. that I found is Northeast Sustainable Agriculture Working Group very mm-hmm. great people 500 organizations in the Northeast you know very interesting and um complex discussions you know just and very welcoming and i guess the last thing i want to say if you're in the city there's a beautiful film called forgotten farms mm-hmm. done by sarah gardner and dave simons about the farms of new england and they've had 70 showings in the northeast um i would like to see them in the city so if you know of any um film festivals or venues in new york philadelphia boston you know these areas if you could let me know, I would love to see this. Um, it's you know sometimes artists can tell our story better than we.
5: Yes,
3: um,
4: so I'd love to see this film shown to um, people who are interested in the in the rural of New York Northeast.
3: Cool. Well, we're going to crowdsource that one for sure. Yeah, um, Lorraine, thank you so so much for hey, giving us you, this insight into you know the 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 boots on the ground aspect of dairy farming. I'm just so grateful to you. And you know m- maybe by the end of the series we'll have you back and you will have listened to some of the other ones. And you can comment on what we've, yeah, what, really I've, what I've, I've covered. I hope so. you have
4: a, you know a bunch of people and I um, diverse yeah. And by all means, and- send
3: me, send me people you think would be interesting. I, w- guests. I definitely will. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate it. All right, and thank you to my sponsor, Hearst Ranch. Really appreciate their support. Always love to hear the beautiful voice of Brian Kenny, and uh, thanks to my engineer. And we'll see you next week with another great show. Thanks for listening, people. So long. <laughs>